Welcome to another episode of Uncharted, the UN Watch podcast. My name is Hannah, and I am the Morris B. Abram Fellow at UN Watch in Geneva, Switzerland. On this podcast episode, we are discussing how UN Watch protects human rights and fights dictatorships. To join me in discussing our work, we have with us UN Watch Executive Director Hillel Moyer. The questions you will hear on this episode were originally submitted by our followers as part of our November 2021 fundraising campaign. To start, how does UN Watch do the work that it does? What exactly is UN Watch's status at the United Nations? UN Watch, the group that I direct, is an NGO. It's a non-governmental organization. We have a badge that calls us an NGO and entitles us to speak at the United Nations. So after the ambassador of France or China speaks, we get to speak, which is a rather tremendous thing. So how does an NGO get a seat at the UN table? Well, the answer is that there's a procedure and then there's sort of the political part. The procedure is you have to be a nonprofit association officially. You send in an application and you pledge to support UN values and then it goes to a committee. The committee is made up of 19 countries. It's called the Committee on NGOs at the United Nations. Sadly, this is one of the worst committees in the entire United Nations. Members of this committee, 19 nations, has included Iran, China, Russia, Sudan, Turkey, some of the worst regimes. And they're only on that committee, not because they care about supporting NGOs, human rights groups, but the very opposite. They want to be there to make sure that groups like ours don't criticize them. So they make it very difficult for an NGO to get accepted if you speak out. If you're a group that doesn't speak out, you're totally fine. And they'll admit you there are a lot of fake groups that are there, groups that belong to the Chinese government or the Syrian government. So it's a very politicized business. We're lucky that we made it in 2002 that we got elected. I think the vote was 10 to 9. If it would go up for a vote today, given the membership, we would barely get four out of 19 votes in favor. So it's a very tricky thing. And finally, I'll mention that when our credentials come up for renewal every four years, there are some evil regimes that try to object. But so far, we've managed to stay on. The United States was elected to the Human Rights Council to begin its term in 2022. Can you tell us about the Human Rights Council elections? The elections were kind of sham elections. What do I mean? There were 18 seats available and there were only 18 candidates. So there was no competition. In every regional group, if there were five seats available, there were only five candidates. This is done by a behind the scenes system where countries make deals with each other and it's backroom deals and one country doesn't deal with another country and that's how they agree to have no competition. So the elections were called elections, but they're not really elections. That's number one. Number two of the countries that were formally elected, who just won, they include Qatar, Kazakhstan, Cameroon. These are elections that were held in October. So they were elected to the Human Rights Council. Some of the worst regimes in the world already sit on the council. They include China, Cuba, Russia, Pakistan, Libya, Mauritania, and Venezuela. So in total, beginning on January 1st, 2022, 68.1% of the Human Rights Council will be countries that are not even in the slightest bit democracies, non-democracies, that fail to meet the minimal standards according to Freedom House, either countries that are outright dictatorships or that are authoritarian regimes. 68.1% of the Human Rights Council will be in this category. Now, um, having said that, there are a number of democracies. There are still over 30%. One of them is the United States. The United States was elected 
and will take their seat on January 1st, 2022. Do you think that the United States sitting on the Human Rights Council will make a difference? What can the United States do? To be honest, there are some things they can do, but it's limited. First thing I want the U.S. to do is to tell the truth. Under the Obama administration, when the U.S. was a member, too often they became cheerleaders for the Council. After every session, they had a document called Key Outcomes, and they would say how amazing the Council is. They would maybe list a little bit of shortcomings or criticisms at the end, but really it was the bare minimum. For the most part, they were praising the Council. So I don't want the U.S. to be a cheerleader when the Human Rights Council does terrible things. Now, Secretary of State Blinken acknowledged that there are major reforms that the Council needs to have, but I hope that they will stick with it. I also want the U.S. to make the Council work. If the U.S. is going to be there, they need to introduce resolutions on countries like China, Russia, Cuba, Pakistan, Libya, that sit on the Council. They should not have immunity. On the contrary, if you sit on the Council, you should be the first to be scrutinized. The rules say that Human Rights Council members shall, and I'm quoting, uphold the highest standards of human rights. This is Resolution 60-251, adopted in 2006. It's the governing charter of the Human Rights Council. So I want the U.S. to hold countries to account, and it's something we haven't seen. Many of the worst regimes get immunity at the Council. If the U.S. is going to do something meaningful with their membership, I want them to hold governments to account. And I want them to fight biased mechanisms. There's all kinds of mechanisms at the U.N. which end up praising dictatorships and that attack democracies. Israel is singled out repeatedly, and the U.S. really has to step up to the plate to fight these biased mechanisms. What factors determine how you measure a country's influence at the UN? So look, it's not something that we regularly measure in terms of a country's influence, but we do care when dictatorships have influence at the UN. A classic example that many people care about is China. So China is now exercising a degree of influence that we have never seen before throughout the United Nations. You have Chinese officials in Montreal recently headed the Civil Aviation Authority organization. In Geneva, they headed the International Telecommunications Union. They headed in Rome the Food and Agriculture Organization. In Vienna, I believe, is UNCTAD dealing with trade. So around the world, you have Chinese officials answerable to the regime heading major agencies. When you have China heading the telecommunications agency, you should be afraid. If China is going to help govern anything to do with the internet, China, as you may know, exercises a massive surveillance state and a massive firewall that controls all of the Chinese internet, is entirely controlled by censorship. So how do we know China has influence? Yes, they're heading these agencies, but it's much more than that. You can go to the Human Rights Council. Has there ever been anything on China? No, there's been zero resolutions on China, zero emergency sessions on China, zero commissions of inquiries on China. By comparison, a country like Israel, there have been 95 resolutions and I think nine emergency sessions. So China gets a free pass, same at the General Assembly, Never been a resolution on China. Of course, not at the Security Council, where they have the veto. So that is an example of how you can measure a country's influence if they ever get criticized. And certainly, if they're a vicious dictatorship controlling 1.4 billion people, you'd think that the United Nations would speak out for these victims. But because of China's power and their influence, they basically get a free pass. China's not the only country, by the way. I should mention Saudi Arabia also has enormous influence because of the money that they have. Saudi Arabia was once criticized in a UN report for its human rights abuses. And rather than accept the criticism, Saudi Arabia pressured the UN. They had their allies call up the Secretary General and say that if that report was not deleted, then Saudi Arabia would 
eliminate funding of some major UN agencies, including for children, and they threaten a fatwa, that they would issue a religious ruling saying that the UN is against Islam. So the UN deleted the report. The UN actually deleted the report about Saudi Arabia's human rights abuses. That is another way to measure a country's influence. The people of Hong Kong are quickly losing their fundamental human rights, including the rights to freedom of speech, assembly, and press. Why isn't the UN doing anything for them? Look, the answer comes back to what I just said before. China is so powerful at the UN. And I'll give you an example of its power. I already mentioned they never get criticized. Another example is China, it emerges. We saw in Le Monde, French newspaper, had an interview with Emma Riley. Who is Emma Riley? She was a UN human rights lawyer, worked for the UN Human Rights Office, and she saw the following, that every once in a while, China, the diplomats in Geneva, would send an email to the UN Human Rights Office and say, could you tell us of these 15 prominent dissidents who criticize the Chinese government, which of these are coming to the next session of the Human Rights Council? And rather than the UN Human Rights Office respond and say that, we're not going to tell you who's coming, that's private information. They would tell them, they would say, oh yeah, you know, Dr. Yang Jan Li, he's coming, and Rabia Kadir, a Uyghur dissident, she's coming. That allowed China to do whatever they wanted to pressure their family members. Many of these dissidents are living in America or in Europe, but if China knows that a prominent dissident is about to come to the Human Rights Council, they can find their cousins, their family members in China and throw them in prison, torture them, and there's reason to believe that's exactly what they did. So the UN was basically handing names over to the Chinese regime, which is outrageous. That is an example of China's influence. So why is it that Hong Kong has never been addressed, sadly? The reason why the UN doesn't do anything about China is it's so powerful. They have influence over UN officials, and Emma Riley called out this practice. She blew the whistle, she went public. She tried internally and said, don't give the names of dissidents over to the Chinese regime. She was rejected her objections. They said, no, no, we have to be nice to China, otherwise they'll make life difficult for us. And when she saw that her bosses weren't listening, she really cared about these Chinese dissidents. She went public and she's now been fired. Okay, she had an interview with Luan, she's been fired. We've been trying to help Emma. She has a case at the UN. The UN Secretary General changed the judge at the last minute. So it's really been a Kafka-esque situation for Emma. And sadly, that is why the UN is doing nothing on Hong Kong. China is too powerful. So when the UN does nothing about the extinguishing of liberty, freedom and democracy in Hong Kong with the draconian national security law, Groups like ours are trying to fill in the breach. A number of years ago, we brought peaceful student leaders, very courageous people, Alex Chow and Lester Shum, to our annual Geneva Summit for Human Rights. We gave these student pro-democracy leaders a global platform. It's an event that we organize once a year, covered by major media around the world, attended by diplomats. So we gave them that platform, and we get to speak at the United Nations. And we brought two very courageous people. One is Denise Ho. She's a Chinese pop singer in Hong Kong very prominent, and she's decided to be active for democracy. She risked her career. Her music in China is now banned, so she jeopardized a lot of her music career because of this. And we brought Denise to address the Human Rights Council. She challenged China for interfering in Hong Kong. Her speech was interrupted twice, quite rudely, by the Chinese official. We had all the cameras there. CNN was there. It was covered by the New York Times, BBC, and around the world. It went viral. So. The UN isn't doing much in Hong Kong, but we are. We also brought Hong Kong lawmaker Tanya Chan, a brilliant lawmaker. She also addressed the Human Rights Council plenary about democracy in Hong Kong. Again, she was actually chastised by the chair of the session, said her remarks 
fell outside the framework of the agenda item, which is promoting and protecting human rights, which was absurd. That's exactly what she was talking about. Her speech went viral on Twitter, was reported by Reuters, BBC, and many other networks. So if the UN doesn't give a platform to heroes fighting for peaceful protests and democracy in Hong Kong, we will do that. What do we know about the case of Chinese tennis star Peng Shui? Chinese tennis star Peng Shui, what was her crime? She reported being sexually assaulted by the former vice chair of China, something you're not allowed to do in China. You can't report crimes committed by high officials of the Communist Party. She did that and she disappeared. The world didn't know where she was. Past few days, suddenly we see some images, some video, but to be honest, most experts, I'd say, have more questions than answers. She nevertheless seems to be under control of the Chinese government. They said in one tweet by a Chinese regime newspaper that she will choose to speak when she wants to and she may want to speak publicly soon, but we still have very serious questions whether she is really free today. In the same vein of human rights abuses in China, can you talk a bit about China's persecution of Christians? Christians are terribly persecuted in China. They jail pastors. They've closed hundreds of churches. They pull down crosses. They force churches to hang the Chinese flag, sing patriotic songs. They've barred minors from attending churches. Christians are terribly persecuted in China. I wish the church and the Pope would speak out a bit more on that. I think that could make a difference. China is the host country for the 2022 Olympic Games. Given China's human rights violations, should people boycott the Games? Good question. I'll tell you what I think. People can have different views. We at UN Watch, we've objected, we've testified, we object to China hosting the Games. This is a country that according to the governments of Canada, the UK and the United States and other countries is committing genocide against the Uyghurs. One million Uyghurs at least, Muslim Uyghurs, put in camps to destroy their identity. You cannot say business is as usual. The notion that world leaders are going to go to China and clap their hands and applaud the games while China is committing genocide is absurd. So we're calling for a boycott against the games and we're also speaking to corporate America. You may not know this, but Bridgestone, Intel, Visa, Airbnb, Coca-Cola, Omega, Panasonic, P&G, Samsung, and Toyota will all be represented in Beijing as quote-unquote Olympic partners. That is the highest level of sponsorship available. Mars Wrigley will also be there handing out Snickers bars as the official chocolate of the 2022 Winter Olympics. So we're asking the corporate sponsors of these games, are you going to look the other way as China commits gross abuses purely out of concern for your bottom line? We don't think that's the right thing to do. And all of these corporations have tried to convince us that they care about issues in America, about social justice. Well, that's all well and good. But if you won't speak out against genocide in China, I don't want to hear anything from any corporations about so-called concern for social justice. It's just not convincing at all. Is it true that the Taliban is being considered for UN credentials? It is true. Sadly, absurdly, the Taliban seized control in a violent military assault on Kabul and other cities, seized control of Afghanistan. It is one of the worst human rights abusers in the world. They are terrorists. They subjugate women in the most horrific ways. They behead people. They apply all kinds of cruel and inhuman punishment based on strict fundamentalist law, Islamic law. And they are now formally requested credentials at the UN. What's the next step? By December 1st, so in about a week, we're expecting that the Credentials Committee, I think it's nine nations sit on the Credentials Committee, Sweden I think is the chair, they will decide whether the Taliban get to represent Afghanistan. If they do, if the Taliban gets the seat, bear in mind what happens, they will automatically inherit Afghanistan's seat on the UN Women's Rights Commission. 
okay? Imagine the Taliban, the worst enemy of women in the world, will be on the Women's Rights Commission helping shape, identify, and define women's rights around the world. Secondly, Afghanistan sits on UNESCO, the UN Agency for Science and Culture. So the Taliban would inherit a seat on UNESCO. That means the Taliban, the same group that 20 years ago blew up 1,500-year-old historic Bamiyan statutes of Buddha, a World Heritage Site. They blew them up out of explosives because they thought they were idolatry. And before the eyes of the world, they did it proudly. These people who blew up those incredible, historic, colossal statues of Buddha dating back to the 5th century, they would be in charge of protecting world heritage. It's absurd. Finally, I'll mention that Suhail Shaheen, the Taliban spokesman, is already calling himself the permanent representative of Afghanistan to the United Nations. And this is outrageous. So I hope that the UN will not recognize the credentials of the Taliban. In August 2021, the Human Rights Council held an urgent session on Afghanistan. What did this session accomplish? Briefly, it accomplished, I would say, worse than nothing. It was a negative result. There was a special session on Afghanistan. It had no condemnation of the Taliban, created no commission of inquiry. That's exactly what I said when I took the floor. It was a failure. Well, guess what? Pakistan is the one that called the session. Pakistan is the sponsor of the Taliban. Things like this are just Kafkaesque. Orwellian, the United Nations Human Rights Council is upside down. The sponsor of the Taliban is the one who organized the session on the Taliban. Don't be surprised that they failed to condemn them. So it is really outrageous. What is the general perception of India's position on Kashmir at the Human Rights Council? Bottom line, the United Nations has never addressed, at least in the past 20 years that I've been there, approximately, has never addressed the issue of Kashmir in any formal resolution. But there was a report. The Independent Office of the High Commissioner, on their own, decided to commission a report on Kashmir. It criticized India, criticized Pakistan for things that happen under the areas of their control. But if you look at the intergovernmental bodies, Human Rights Council, the General Assembly, they don't say anything about India or Pakistan. Since the start of its civil war, Syria has been effectively shunned by many countries around the world. However, it seems to some that it has been getting rehabilitated recently. Have you seen this shift reflected at the UN? We do see that. When Syria's murderous regime, not so long ago, was elected to the World Health Organization's executive board, no one said anything. We sounded the alarm. This happened just in May. We broke the story and was covered in the Washington Post and NPR. People in Syria objected. Many people in Syria objected. It was absolutely absurd. What are your thoughts on the status of women in Iran? Look, the question is, are they respecting human rights? The way the Iranian radical, fundamentalist, theocratic regime, a human rights abusing regime, under Ayatollah Khamenei, which is a murderous regime, the way that they apply Sharia law in Iran is subjugating women. Women are forced to wear a veil to cover their hair from the age of seven. My friend Masi Alinejad, a courageous Iranian woman who grew up in a very religious family says that women should be able to do what they want. If they want to wear the hijab, let them. But if they don't, they should be free. But the Iranian regime wants to control women. It wants to control their own people. It seeks to subjugate them. We oppose that. That is a violation of basic freedom. And I have to say that one of the most absurd things happened this year. Iran was elected to the UN Women's Rights Commission, this same misogynistic regime. And we exposed that to the world. And we are going to start a campaign to remove Iran from the UN Women's Rights Commission because it is the most misogynistic regime in the world. Thank you for listening to Uncharted, the UN Watch podcast. See you next time.